Welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Nicole Barcelona. Nicole is an artist manager and the president of Women in Music, a nonprofit advocacy group designed to protect and advance the interests of, well, women working in music. Nicole was raised in New York City and the music industry as the daughter of two pioneers in the field. Her dad, Frank Barcelona, essentially created the modern concert touring business when he hand-assembled the network of regional concert promoters, people like Bill Graham, Don Law, Larry Magid, who formed the backbone of most any concert tour since the early 1970s. The successor companies that these people ran became the modern industry behemoth Live Nation. Nicole's mom, June, was a writer and journalist in London who conducted the first interview in the UK with the Beatles for Disc Magazine. June went on to serve as the American correspondent for all of the London Daily Mirror Group's music publications and covered artists like The Who and The Rolling Stones, as well as many others. By the end of the 60s, June was working for Atlantic Records, launching the careers of Cream, The Rascals, and a little band called Led Zeppelin. Nicole is a working mother balancing the needs of her family, her artists, and her commitment to causes and advocacy. We could have spoken about the history and future of our business for hours. I hope you enjoy what we did get to cover. And now, Nicole Barcelona. I'd love to start sort of at the beginning. Uh, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York, um, in Manhattan. Yep, in the city. So kind of an alternative childhood to begin with. A lot of people are like, what's that like growing up in the city? And I'm like, I don't know anything different. So. pretty standard, but now raising a daughter, I realize, yeah, a little, little bit of a different speed. <laughs> yeah. Where, where, where are you uh, raising your child? If not in the city? We're in Boston now. Oh, okay. In so the city it's like, yeah. In the city itself, but Boston feels like a town and there's like no hustle and bustle really, you know, relative to New York. So, um, a lot quieter, definitely. Yeah. I grew up, um, just outside of New Haven. And so that's sort of oh. on the, uh, it's like the Mason-Dixon line of New York <laughs> and Boston. And I always tell people, um, you know, you can find houses divided, um, brothers against brothers and fathers oh. against sons when it comes to sports and even orientation. You know, there's sort of New England versus New York. Totally. Uh, lifestyle and everything. And uh, When my husband and I met, it was a real issue. Luckily, I didn't care too much about the Yankees, but they would not have worked Sony? out if I had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's originally from Boston, so... Right, very hardcore. That's very fan. funny. My for me, it's the opposite. My my ex wife is from outside of Boston, and uh, but we met in New York, so that, that yeah. Was okay. So yeah, I, I raised my uh, first few years of my my kids' lives. Uh, let's see. From my first son was born in two thousand five, and we left New York in twenty sixteen. So yeah, uh, city kid, um, it's a special thing. It is. It's uh, it's crazy. It yeah. really is. I feel like parenting is something that like you know, makes you call into question your ability and your decision-making more than anything else in life. <laughs> you know, it's like a really out-of-body experience. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm like shaping a human here. Is this the right call? <laughs> <Did> I, <laughs> just, 
Is that the right rule to set? I don't know. It's just yeah, it always life. makes me laugh the things that, you know, like uh, you think about driver's licenses, all the rigmarole around getting a driver's license, and then any fool can have a kid. <laughs> right. It's true. It's pretty scary. It's amazing the species has made it this far. That's, I have been saying that for weeks now with coronavirus. Like, honestly, it's a surprise we made it this far, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> How many children do you have? Just one. What age? Uh, three. Oh, wow. So you're like full on. I can't believe you're able to string sentences together. It's really a little bit of a challenge at the moment. <laughs> Toddlerhood well, and quarantine is uh, something. <laughs> yeah, that is something. So my, my oldest is, uh, is 15 and my youngest is 12. Uh, my 12 year old is, uh, is pretty severely disabled. So he's in a wheelchair requires a lot of help, but, um, even that's much different than a three year old. (laughs) Yeah. I always tell people he can't run around and make trouble. (laughs) Right. I know. Yeah. That's a whole other, whole other set of, of challenges. Yeah. It's all, it's, it's okay though. So you grew up a city kid and um, a city kid. What did that mean, practically speaking? Did you was the city your backyard? Yeah, it was. I really feel like um, you know I'm not super athletic, so it didn't affect <laughs> my need for running around. Um, I really didn't. I don't think I really thought about it too much growing up. I think like it was cool to have. I you know I tell my husband all the time on Halloween we used to go to the Natural History Museum and they did a whole thing for kids, and so there were like different cool things growing up in the city. I think we had access to certainly like I was out at shows all the time as a kid. Um, my dad was an agent and he used to bring me to shows when I was really young. And I guess back in the eighties, there wasn't like a, a problem with bringing an underage child into a bar, but, <laughs> or a club, but <laughs> can't do that with my daughter too much these days, I guess. But, um, but we were always kind of out doing really fun stuff. And my parents are both real night owls and just, you know, really into arts and culture. And so there was always really fun stuff going on. Um, I don't think I appreciated it as a kid going to, you know, being dragged to museums all the time as much as um, you kind of do in retrospect, but, it was a really cool way to grow up. It was, um, you know, kind of a little bit more diverse um, in terms of the different things we could go do and see, I think, than, than necessarily what we're doing now with my daughter. Well, I mean, she's only three, but they just had a really kind of, you know, culturally interesting artistic lifestyle. So it was a cool way to, to grow up. Yeah. So were you, as a young child, um, your parents were taking you to shows? They were sort of taking you to their office, if you will? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I grew up um, on the road every summer. We'd go out on whatever tour my dad was doing that year. We'd kind of hop around. And so it was a really fun way to to spend time. And again, felt totally normal because I didn't have anything to compare it to. But now I realize like, I mean, it was good that one parent was in the industry and my mom had stepped out. She was actually a rock journalist um, and came over uh, when the Beatles came over from from England, she came over and, and moved to America um, and actually did the first interview with the Beatles here in America for a UK publication. So she had an incredible start to her career as well. But um, she stepped out when I was born. And I can see now how it would be a lot easier to have like one parent off of work, you know, while <laughs> you're on tour, because I cannot imagine having a kid on tour right now. <laughs> yeah. It's just a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I talked to... Um to other adult children who grew up in our industry. And um, your story sounds a little bit more sane and idyllic than some of the other stories I've heard. I've definitely had adult children of rock and roll tell me like the things they went through now would probably be considered abuse. Not necessarily that they were abused, but the level of neglect or the things they were exposed to was like not cool. And it was much more on the musician side, not necessarily on the business people side. 
Yeah. Um, I have to say my parents did an incredible, incredible job of balancing it. I don't know how, but especially in the eighties, like all the stuff that was going on backstage and who knows what on tour, you know, um, now it's different because everyone's like making smoothies, you know, in green rooms and, um, doing yoga before a show. But like back then it was really insane. I have one like very vivid memory of being backstage at, um, Jones beach and, I just remember whatever we were doing, there were a bunch of people who came into the room and then everyone kind of like wink, wink. And my mom took me outside. Um, so who knows what drugs were about to be done, but it was like, you know, I, I remember that just because it was really one of the only times I felt like I wasn't supposed to be there. Otherwise it was just really normal. And I think my parents did a great job of keeping me sheltered to a good degree. So, yeah, well, I definitely, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to tell the context of your story without talking about them a little bit. And I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, I don't want to dive too deeply into that because I'd imagine a lot of folks ask you to rehash their lives and careers, but let's touch on it enough to provide the right context for your story. I love it. Um, so your dad was Frank Barcelona. You mentioned he was an agent, but he was sort of the prototypical agent for the modern rock and roll era helped establish the modern concert promoter model touring business, sort of the regional promoter paradigm that was dominant really for the first 20 or 30, 30 years of the rock and roll era. Right. Um, ultimately, those companies all folded into SFX and ultimately Live Nation. That story, I think, has been very well told. And it's a fascinating foundation story of our industry. Yeah. Um, but your mom's story is super fascinating as well. And I yeah. feel like I'm embarrassed to say I'm less familiar with it. And I don't know if because it's a less told story um, or if it's a blind spot for me. But I would love it if you could talk a little bit about who your mom was and how she came into the rock and roll world. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, she's, it's a little lesser told story because my mom is like very humble and my dad was... Um, a great storyteller and like loved telling the story of how everything came about on his side. Um, so my mom was often the one kind of fact checking <laughs> his stories and never really um, tells her story. So uh, she has an incredible one. She was born in 1938 in London. So during the war relevant now, because she tells me stories now about like rationing and remembering her dad coming home after waiting online for candy, you know, which now when I'm like, okay, I have to pick up milk this week, you know, in coronavirus, it's very obviously different, but kind of um, makes me think now as a parent, how she grew up and how her parents uh, were dealing with kind of how terrifying the war was and the bombings in London as they have little kids at home. And so anyway, just fascinating to me now, hearing back on those early days for her. And so she grew up in England. Her older brother was an athlete, um, a soccer player, and got all the attention um, as I hear it from her. And so she kind of went out on her own a little bit and was able to kind of do what she wanted. And what she wanted to do was be a journalist. And so my grandfather said to her, okay, listen, I'll give you a year or two, give it a shot. Um, and if it doesn't work out, you know, whatever, you move on to the next thing. But back then that was really something because women really didn't kind of, you know, weren't always told, sure, go for this. You know, you have a dream and a career that you want to pursue <laughs> um, in the 40s and 50s, go for it. Um, and she did. And so she started writing. She is an incredible writer. And I have been begging her to sit down and write her story. Um, and she wrote for, um, I think it was a disc magazine and a couple of outlets in London on Fleet Street, you know, took me to the pubs that she used to go to after work with her, her other staff. Knew a ton of the people now whose names 
we know in the music industry as leaders. And they were all just kind of starting out in London in that scene. And then she came over the story as the story goes, as I know it, um, when the Beatles came over for their first show in the U S which my dad was a part of booking. And um, she came over to write the first interview with them in the U S for UK publication. And so she was close with the guys and um, met my dad and they became friends and that relationship evolved over years and he was starting his own agency. And so um, I think she, and you know, he brought over a lot of the British invasion acts at the beginning. That's how we really set up his foundation. And I think it was a lot in part, you know, due to my mother's reputation and the fact that she was British and she was kind of this home base for a lot of those acts who were like, who's this American guy? You know, who is this guy who we're going to trust our careers to over here? Um, and so it was a really cool Thing. You know, they used to have, um, whether it was The Who or um, The Stones, all of those bands kind of over for dinner and hmm. was, you know, very kind of familial. Like I grew up with, you know, whether it was like Bono or Springsteen or someone would be like in our living room for dinner. My mom would be making meatloaf. My, she was a great cook. Um, my dad would be sitting floor stories. And um, I think that the two of them together just gave artists this really kind of familial feel, you know, they were, they really loved what they did and um, they really tried to make everyone a part of the family. And it was just a really cool kind of pairing of, and, you know, different skills. They both kind of complemented each other really well. So it was more of a, my mom doesn't get um, as much of the credit, but I think she was a really huge part of kind of what made Frank approachable and, yeah. and uh, kind of gave a little softer side yeah, well, it sounds like just in her chosen career, it was about other people's stories. Totally, totally. And she went to Atlantic um, before she stepped away. She went to Atlantic and did um, press kits and publicity for artists there. And so a lot of cool stuff that she worked on. We actually have a few of the clippings um, we got out of an archive. So we have a little book we put together with some of her first articles and some of those bands and some of the early reviews, which are really fun to read through. That's amazing. Yeah. And she was at Atlantic during, I mean, Atlantic's peak rock era or initial rock era, right? As it transitioned yeah. from a soul and sort of ethnic music label into a British rock powerhouse. <laughs> right, right. I mean, really incredible time in history. And uh, yeah. yeah. How did your dad end up involved with the UK acts? Was he an Anglophile? Was he going to the UK talent scouting? Like what's the, I never really got the genesis of that. Yeah, you know, I have to ask my mom. That's a really good question. I, I know that like he had a really great sense of like what I think he had a really great sense of was popular. Um, and he kind of like followed whatever he saw trending in a way. Um, so, you know, he got the all about the Beatles show over here. And, you know, the people were like trying to break down barricades and things were going crazy. Um, and so like, I I think, I think we have something here. Like, I think we're on to something, you know? Um, and so that stuff happened again and again. And we actually have this great um, series of interviews that were done that Stephen Van Zandt had commissioned um, of his stories when he was still around to tell, you know, all of these crazy examples of this stuff happening at these early shows with these bands that kind of just blew up out of nowhere. And so he saw those little things and saw kind of the, you know, enthusiasm of these fans um, early on. And then he would just kind of call up these promoters who are young kids, you know, at the time, whether it was John Landau um, was actually a, a journalist also mm -hmm. at the time and a young, young kid. And um, Don Law was in college here in Boston. And so 
he kind of started these relationships with these young kids and would say like, okay, well, I have this band. Here's what's happening. Let's try to work on this together and it'll make, you know, we'll make it worth your while. Um, and we really see a future and you just have to trust that, you know, the first couple of shows will probably lose money, but then we'll really see a return because these fans are obviously not going anywhere. So I think he just kind of had that. He had to like a really long-term vision and he had patience and he just asked other people to have patience. Um, and if he ever, you know, if you ever were in a room with him, you, he would talk person to person, like, listen, trust me on this. Here's what I think is going to happen. He was like very calm and rational. And so he ended up kind of crafting these relationships with these younger guys and, and they built these, uh, these really great long-term relationships built on like trust and, you know, a vision for longevity for these acts saying, you know, we might not see much the first two shows. We'll see something like you'll see these fans come in the door and be singing along to every song. And that's, what's going to prove the longevity, but um, just kind of establish those, those relationships, which, you know, is hard now, obviously um, just a different, different system, different economy. But um, back then I think it was a pretty cool thing to really have someone have a vision for those, for those bands in a new market um, and build those relationships that saw that kind of growth ahead. Yeah. And to set a model that really was the paradigm for decades and decades. It's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating accomplishment and story. So you grow up in this melting pot of artists and art and culture and being in the city. And you know, that just that era in New York is fascinating in its own right. Even if your parents had grown up in straight jobs, being in New York would have been fascinating during that era. So you leave New York to go to school. Yeah, I left New York to go to school. I went to Boston University because actually Don Law was um, a dear friend at that point and certainly a mentor. Um, and him and his wife, Sarah, lived in Boston, right outside of Boston. And we used to spend summers coming to visit them. Um, and I just fell in love with the city. My mom was always pushing Boston. It reminded her of London. Um, wow. And I actually met my husband uh, right before coming to college in Aruba, of all places, um, on spring break in high school. And he was from Boston. And not that I want to say I went to school in Boston because I met a guy, but it definitely helped push me in the direction of Boston when I was deciding between a couple of places. So um, ended up coming here to school in Boston at BU. I went to communication school. I uh, did not want to work in the music business at all, like had no intention. In fact, I wanted to go into like corporate crisis PR because <laughs> those were the kind of skills growing up in music that um, I had kind of honed. That's yeah, wanted nothing to do with it. And I was, Stephen Van Zandt always jokes that I was like the Alex P. Keaton of the family. Not that I'm conservative in any way, but like compared to my parents, I'm just a lot more like, uh, I don't want to say organized because that's not really true, but just like I appreciate like routine and regiment a little bit more than they do, yeah, sure. which is not saying much. Um, so I wanted to go into kind of corporate PR and, and maybe even political crisis PR. Um, and I started interning at corporate companies here in the summers and it was just like a real bummer. Um, like you had to be there at a certain time in an office and wear office clothes and just not something that I was used to. Like, you know, being somewhere at nine in the morning on time is just not a skill of mine. Um, so Stephen Van Zandt actually called, um, right before I was graduating and he said, Hey, I, uh, I hear you're like thinking of going to work and he always made like funny comments, you know, like you're going to, I was going to go study to be a nutritionist at one point. Don't ask. This is years later when I left his company and was like having a crisis of conscious about being in the music industry again. But, um, 
he was like, I hear you're going to go do something. Why don't you come to my office? I need help. I'm doing a festival next week. This is typical Stephen. It was last minute. And he said, come and help, you know, do credentials for the artists. I need someone who I can trust to like help the artists figure out what they're doing in this festival. So I went to, I didn't know he had a company. I knew he had, you know, been on the Sopranos and was in the East Street band, but I didn't realize he was like running an entire company. And so I went to intern for him. It was supposed to be like a week long gig over the summer and it turned into the first five years of my career and like we're definitely the most influential seminal times in my life i think thus That's far cool. i mean he is just you know steven much like my dad and my dad was a mentor to him much like my dad has this way of challenging you um he doesn't take any bs and he doesn't take any excuses and he i think really pushed me from day one and it was you know i was like getting coffee for a year. Like, it's not like I was involved in high level work um, when I started, but um, he just like threw me in the deep end, you know, at the company, there was no like official training. There was no like HR, you know, you just kind of started doing a job. I was like plopped at a desk and told to do credentials for a festival. I had never, you know, worked a day in my life on festivals or any other live show before. So it was just like learning um, in the trenches really. And it was incredible. And, and Stephen is a person who like holds you to the highest level, you know, his expectations are really high and his standards are high. And I think there's just nothing better for a young kid who, you know, I, I mean, I had like a degree in communications and I, you know, was very like, I had done crisis PR plans before. And I was like, I know all of these things. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's really nice to be pushed and realize that like that stuff can be applied, but um, it, it takes a lot more than that to be good at your job. And, there came a point years later where I was leaving his company after being on tour with him and Springsteen for years and um, doing a ton of stuff with his label and the production company. And I was just working 24 seven and completely burned out. And we were moving, my husband and I were moving cities. And I said, you know what, I think I just, I need to take a break. And I think I might take a break from music. I think it's just like, this is not, you know, I, I don't know how to craft a life where it's sustainable for me. Like I want to have a family one day. Um, I don't want to be on the road 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I just don't know if it's sustainable. He doesn't hold back. He tells you how he feels. Um, and he was like, you are going to like squander your potential. Like I'm telling you right now, don't like, don't waste your potential <laughs> because you're, you're nervous. It's not going to be like crafting a lifestyle. You know, he's like, don't, be stupid about it. And I, I left. I was like, this is the decision I'm making. And so that's when I decided I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to like, see, maybe I want to be a nutritionist. I really love like, you know, health and wellness. And I took a couple of classes. Ridiculous. Like, it's just, I, I really was, I think, kind of, you know, turning away from what I am I love and passionate about and where my skills lie. And um, so he was totally right. And it, he was kind of, his voice was in the back of my head for a while. And finally, I was like, you know what, I've always wanted to be an artist manager. I did it um, ostensibly for Steven, while we were on the road tour managing for him and um, running all of his stuff for ages. So I'm just going to give it a shot. And I had always kind of, I think when I was working with him, and, you know, we were touring so much, and it was just such high level work, and you're getting requests all the time for things. So most of what you're doing is turning things down. Um, and his career had already, you know, it was already huge. It wasn't like I was helping to craft that I wanted to work the way my dad with, with artists, you know, he was an agent, but it, he was so much also like an advisor to them. He was really close. They would sit and talk for hours, you know, on the floor of his office or our apartment. And he had these beautiful relationships where like there was just this mutual trust and respect and he could really 
tell the artist what he thought, whether they wanted to hear it or not. And that's what I wanted. I wanted like a, a really personal relationship with artists who I loved and trusted and admired and, and you know, loved their work and wanted to be a part of kind of crafting their career and, and getting it going at the early stages. And then hopefully, you know, staying on with them long term rather than like, and that sounds ridiculous because, you know, it was a lot easier <laughs> working with an established artist, but um, rather than kind of working at that level and then feeling like you're not part of uh, building the early exciting parts where hopefully I can, I can be instrumental in, in helping artists reach their goals. So. So it's an interesting nexus of thought you were going to try to walk away from sort of your, uh, your heritage, if you will, or, or, uh, or you didn't want it to become an inevitable destiny for yourself, but you, you, you wind up in a situation where you really melded um, aspects of both of your parents' fields. I mean, it's interesting when, you know, when I was growing up, it felt like the, the things people aspired to do in the music business were start a label, put right. on shows or be a manager. And right. um, I always thought, um, you know, being a manager is the toughest because uh, I, do I, could I really care about somebody else's well-being and, and livelihood, um, not only at that level, but really before anything else. Um, right. And you talked about, you know, the, the being on the road or the two o'clock in the morning phone call. And it's sometimes it's creative insecurity. Sometimes it's dealing with personal messes. And um, that that's always it's always blown my mind. Um, the 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 personality types and the commitment and um i just don't i i don't i really don't understand um at, yeah. at a profound level how people can do it it's an amazing selfless act very far from a sure thing right i i don't think it's selfless i think there's like some kind of a weird challenge in it that i really enjoy <laughs> i like dealing with really difficult people and I, neither of my clients right now are difficult at all. They're like the most phenomenally laid back artists, um, which is why we have such great relationships. But I think that like that all of that kind of interpersonal stuff and those big personalities, um, I just like love that. And I love kind of being the bridge between those personalities and like everyday people who like don't necessarily understand the big creative um, thing that's happening with an artist, you know, and, and the perspective, um, even if it's something like an ad agency person, you know, wanting to do something with a song and the artist doesn't because there's some like higher creative meaning for them. And it, just like communicating all of those intricacies. I just, I just love it. Um, yeah. And luckily, you know, I, when I first started out and decided to, to like try to be a manager, which I knew nothing about at that time, other than like the actual managers I knew, but I didn't know day to day what they did really. Um, so it took me five or six years to even like sit on my computer Googling things really um, to figure out what it was um, that I was doing. But I think that the first artist I work with um, was, you know, we had a great relationship to start and then it, it turned really dramatic really quickly. And she was just like a, a very high maintenance personality and it did not work out. And I would wake up in the morning and see texts waiting for me and just feel anxiety already. And I just knew that that was not the right fit. Um, so I think from that relationship, I really learned what I would be able to work with and what I wouldn't in terms of kind of the creative personality. Um, so luckily I was kind of stumbled upon the two artists I work with now who are just like work their butts off, understand what it means to, um, you know, need a manager, understands what a manager actually does. And then it's not, you know, you can't have a manager at a point where you don't need one or it's not like an assistant. Um, just like have 
the be- you know the best work ethic, um, real visions for their career. So I'm not like trying to come up with who they are and what they stand for and all of these other things. They just kind of are these artists and we're able to work together in a way that um, just try to, to elevate what they're doing. So it's been um, really great. And who are the two artists? Um, Pratik Kuhad, who is a singer-songwriter out of New Delhi, um, wow. who has just like taken off over the last few years. It's been uh, unbelievable. I met him in 2016 at South by Southwest. He was on NPR's list. Um, and... Um, I was just like clicking through their Spotify playlist, heard him, his song called Oh Love from his debut album in 2015, which is like still one of my favorite songs. Uh, it drives him crazy. Um, and he won't even play it for me at shows, but just an incredible, like beautiful anthemic song. And I fell in love and I emailed him and was like, huh, he doesn't have a manager in the US. And prior to that, I met my Australian artist a few years before that. Um, he was busking in Sydney, Mark Wilkinson, incredible vocalist. Um, and I was literally at an outside market on vacation, heard him singing. He was singing Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. And it was just like, you hear his voice and you're like, oh my gosh, what is that? And you, we followed it. My husband and I followed it. My husband insisted on buying a CD and I was like, oh, he's probably just sings covers. Like his voice is unbelievable, but it's probably just covers. You know, I'm not, I'm not interested in a cover artist right now. You know, I had not managed anyone yet. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, we bought the CD and it was like, my mind was blown and we both became the hugest fans. And I just emailed him and was like, you know what, do you have a manager in the U S because I'm realizing that maybe is where I can bring value is not to manage someone in the U S day to day, because that's like, you're just like banging your head up against a wall with so much saturation and to find like a cool angle and all of this stuff that is necessary to kind of market an artist, um, who's emerging. But if I have an artist who's like built a following, in an international market and has a story to tell there, maybe that makes it easier for me. And then we're able to like get a foothold in North America and build out that way. So that's what we did with Mark. Um, and that's what we've done with Pratik and with Mark Wilkinson. I brought him over in 2013 for the first time. We had a label offer on my desk before he boarded the plane. I like, I don't know. People like found us. I don't, it's like the stars aligned. Um, we ended up walking away from it actually, cause it wasn't a good fit and he's had a great um, independent career by choice. And then Pratik um, has been like insane. He's at the top of the indie scene in India, which is just a fascinating, burgeoning global music market. It's just really interesting how things are kind of shaping up over there. Um, And he was on Obama's list of best music in December. So it's like, I don't even know, you know, it's been an incredible ride. (laughs) And I'm lucky to, lucky to work with two just incredible humans also they're like two of my best friends and my co-managers are two of my dearest friends and we're just like these really cool teams and I'm so lucky as a independent manager who doesn't have a company you know infrastructure behind me to have these partners internationally and we just like work together on everything and it's just it's a really great way that it's shaped up yeah what is an artist what do you need to see in an artist um, to be interested to get involved with them managerially Well, like now it's, uh, you know, I have to like have slept more than three hours with my daughter. You know, it's really changed. I think now that I have a daughter, it's like I, the the amount of time I used to be able to spend working um, was all the time. (laughs) Um, I never really needed to sleep and I could be up until four in the morning easy, you know, and now it's like, I just unfortunately have to um, kind of set more boundaries than I ever have. I don't go out on the road for full tours. You know, I really have to kind of 
set these things up so that um, I don't go insane and my daughter doesn't uh, not know her mother. <laughs> the opposite is true. We are together nonstop. Um, but that's how I really, you know, what a parent and I make it very clear to everyone that like my family really does come first. My artists are also my family to me. So, but my daughter is number one. So right now it's like, do I have actual time to put brain space toward even helping someone? And so a lot of times I'll say like, listen, I can't take on any clients right now, but like, let me let me help you do this or that, or let's work on this. And I can give you any advice or I can introduce you to someone. And then if things pick up, like I'm happy to, you know, keep the conversation going. Um, before even that, I think that the number one thing that all managers look for is like, are you a fan of the music? And some people I think will say like, listen, if I don't love the music, but I see that other people love it, that's a win also. I think it was Doc McGee. I was reading something recently that he said, that was like talking about him and meatloaf. And he was like, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of what he was doing, but I saw the reaction of the fans and I knew I was onto something. So I think there's that just like seeing that the indicators that people are into it. For me, I really have to love the music. I, I have to like, I have to be playing it at home in my spare time um, because otherwise it's just like way too much work um, and emotional investment. And I want to like, I want to love my artists as people too. I want to like, I want them to be a part of my family the way my dad treated his clients. And I want that to be like, work is not work for me. I want to wake up in the morning and see 60 texts from an artist and be excited by it and ready to dive in and not like, Oh gosh, like Monday, you know, I just don't, it's just, if I am going to do that, I'd rather take a real job, uh, you know, and get a steady paycheck <laughs> and not have to worry about the other stresses of the music business. Um, so I think for me, it's like loving the music loving the artist um, and just having them understand that like no one's going to work harder than the managers, but like they need to work equally as hard um, because you really can't put all of this time and energy into an artist when like our, you know, managers are taking commissions, which at the beginning are zero depending on what level you're at um, after expenses and God knows what. So, you know, just understanding that it's, it's a slog and you really have to be 100% invested in the artist to to be able to to put that time and energy in and to be able to market it like I'm not going to make calls and be like you have to listen to this if I don't actually love it that much myself and think that it has legs so you know I would just say like you have to really love love the music yeah and that's an interesting point that I think that's another thing that's always dissuaded me from management is that I think my own tastes are too esoteric. And if I loved an artist so much that I wanted to work with them, I would count that as a bad sign. <laughs> I always tell people, if you're looking for me, if you're looking for my A&R skills, like if you wanted me to program a festival or something, it's going to be right. somewhere between free jazz and like roots reggae. <laughs> oh my God. That is hilarious. See, I'm like top 40. Like, Taylor Swift, I'm like, like a really mainstream sound, which like, you know, is not, critique is like very nuanced and gorgeous and not pop at all. But um, I have a very mainstream sound. So I always joke, like if I like it, I'm pretty sure I don't love like, you know, niche sound. So I, I do have like a, a top 40 preference yeah i do love a good pop song i mean a good hook a good powerful yeah. I, I get that I, I and i'm not i'm not snobbish or immune to that in any way i just don't trust my a and r sensibility <laughs> um so is your specialty um like is, is is your niche now you're going to work with international artists and help them develop america yeah i think that's really 
think that's really where I've been able to help the most. Um, like one of my artists uh, is about, we're about to sign a major label deal. And I like five years ago, I never would have thought like we would have built a career to the point where like we, people were knocking on our door competing for offers. Like I just never envisioned that. Um, so I really, I've been so proud of what we've been able to build. Um, and I wake up like every morning, I, my co-manager and I were the other day, we're going through like the bullet points from the last year. And it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, but it's, it's only a matter of how good the artist is and how much work that artist puts in. And I mean, what they do on socials, what they, you know, there are so many things now that an artist has to do and do well. Um, and so we're just so lucky to have the guys who I work with, uh, working their butts off all the time and, and bring it to a place where, um, we can get international eyes on it and then grow from there. So that's what I love. I really love doing that. I would not not consider, um, like a, a U.S. based artist. In fact, there's one artist who has been on my mind for a while now. Um, and I'm hoping to, kind of be able to put a little something um, in terms of my brain space into, into him. But um, yeah, I think that's like really where, I think that's what, what like helped me get to a place where I needed to be to help other artists. So like, I think now I've come to a point where I worked with enough people and I know all of these incredible, whether it's A&R or agents or um, publicists, like people who I now trust and could be like my team when I bring on another, another artist to go to, to build up things even domestically to a point where it would make sense. Um, so I think it just helped me kind of get my feet as a manager um, under me and, and know what I was doing and, and know who to work with. And hopefully, you know, maybe when we're out of quarantine and I have a, a babysitter again, uh, or we go back to school, <laughs> I can well, work with someone other than international artists. It also seems like you've got um, the potential to develop a secret sauce around helping um, American repertoire export um, into other territories because of your network now with co-managers in India or Australia or other territories. And, and sort of th there's a, there's an international playbook you can help develop as well. I tell you, there's the stuff going on in India is absolutely off the charts. Um, and I think it's going to be really huge and exciting. And so that's what I'm really hoping um, my co-manager and I have been talking about it a lot. It's just like sharing everything back and forth um, so that we're really, you know, a conduit for a lot of artists here to, to get in front of audiences there. Cause it's so strange, like even how, how connected things are, there's still huge gaps, um, especially in places like India, even China, like there, you know, there's huge emerging markets and it's just like, you don't quite know how to enter. So it's nice to kind of have those, those lifelines. Yeah, for sure. I would imagine. I would imagine, especially if you if you buy into the notion that all business and our business in particular is relationship based, it, it would not make sense if you could just march into another territory. I mean, you can't even really right. march into Nashville and say, hey, right. I'm here, let's let's do business, you know. So the idea that we go uh, halfway around the world um, and expect the door to be wide open um, doesn't really make much sense. But that that's that's a really interesting, um, unique proposition that you bring to the table. I want to make sure we get to, a, I, I, there's a bunch of questions I want to ask you about women in music. Yeah. Um, before we pivot to that, I'm curious, with the artists that you work with that are developed internationally and then come to, you know, that you help bring to America, is the business world different? Do artists deals, um, you know, not necessarily with their managers, I'm not interested in, in unpacking your business, but, um, you know, are, do labels function differently? Do, is the promoter model different? What do you see happening in some of those other markets that are just different from what you see here? It is so completely different. 
um, I don't even know where to begin. The live shows, so Pratik in particular started out a couple of years ago doing house concerts, and him and his old co- my old co-manager over in India would set up these little shows. They'd string lights up outside. People would come and pay tickets, um, and it was like all completely DIY. And then it started getting to a point where they were like, okay, we need to rent out an auditorium, but there's no mid-size venue there. Like, it, there aren't promoters and venues in the same way there are here. There's not that structure yet, which is, you know, reminiscent of when my dad started kind of setting those systems up here back in the day. It's like, oh, right, you need a guy who you can, or a woman that was sexist, a person who you can trust in, you know, Mumbai because we need to send our artist over there and we can't, like, rent out a random auditorium that we don't, you know, know the specs of. Yeah, you know, it's all this, like, incredibly basic stuff that just does not exist in the structure um, or hadn't a couple of years ago that we could, you know, just call a promoter and say, Hey, we want to, we want to pitch a show. So they were literally renting out auditoriums and doing ticketing themselves. And now, you know, there are a few kind of bigger promoters. They do a lot of, it's really Bollywood and everything else there. So um, these promoters have started doing, they do a lot of like, whether it's a Bollywood artist or film and TV events. Um, so it's not just music, but they started doing kind of bigger, bigger shows. Um, Z live is like one of the promoters we just did. And they had these huge, you know, 9,000 person outdoor shows that we just um, wrapped up in December. Um, and that was more of a, a promoter model, but they do like a, they basically do a buyout and same for like sync advertising or writing for sync there, you know, Netflix, let's say will come to you and say, okay, we need, we want this song written. Here's your fee. You get no rights to it. That's just, (laughs) you know, a TV or not, maybe not, I don't know about Netflix. We just did a deal with Netflix there with something else, but um, like a Bollywood movie, which is like everyone buys to get into those soundtracks. It's just a flat fee. So here you have like a million jumps through hoops to jump through in terms of like making sure the different people sign off on the licensing agreements. And, you know, if the artist has publishing and the master side and you're doing kind of all of these things with paperwork and over there, it's like, okay, we need it tomorrow. So either take it or leave it. This is the fee and there's nothing else that you get. (laughs) So um, it's just a total buyout, which is really interesting and has definitely, you know, it's been complicated bringing critique over in that sense because, our publishers here are like, what do you mean they need an answer in 24 hours and they need the song written in 24 hours and you don't get any rights. You know, it's just like a very different situation and the artists definitely don't have as much uh, negotiating power. I mean, Nicole, it's hard for me to escape the fact that there's a lot of similarities as the world that Frank walked into 50, 60 years ago in terms of the early promoter model in the late 50s, early 60s of the artists just got paid a fee. They showed up, they did their work and on they went. Um, it's yeah. fascinating to hear that here you are, the person who did everything they could to avoid being in the midst of all this, <laughs> not only in the midst of it, but um, at the ground floor again. I know. It's weird. It's weird. It's fun. It's like, it's a little different now because, you know, Live Nation does exist and they are slowly coming into places like India. So it's not totally uh, fresh because they'll, you know, everyone will be involved in 10 minutes there, but um it is. It has been really cool to kind of see how it's evolved, even in the last couple of years in that market. Um, yeah. yeah, kind of a fun time. No rules for sure. Yeah. Well, tell me. Um. So, thank you for that. I, I, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I love to hear about the the machinations. Tell me about women in music, and uh, mm. just to give listeners uh, two seconds of context. 
we're not merely talking about women who work in music. <laughs> this is an organization right. that you're deeply involved with. Um, I'd love to know about your involvement. I'd love to know the need, like, you know, what, what, what's the organization addressing and uh, maybe a little bit about how the, um, the organization's role or place has changed in the last six or eight weeks, if, if at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Women in Music was founded um, in 1985, so well before I got involved. Um, and I think the needs back then were pretty different. Um, I certainly grew up kind of seeing it. And, you know, when I, when I was young, I had two mentors. One was Michelle Anthony, who is now, of course, at the head of uh, the helm of Universal. And um, the other was Barbara Skydell, who was the vice president technically at Premier Talent, my dad's agency. But, I mean, she did everything. You know, Barbara was like, talk about a trailblazer, um, especially back then killer negotiator, uh, just like phenomenal human being. So those were the two women who really were my mentors growing up. Um, and neither of them had families. And I really saw how powerful they were, how much they worked, how much they sacrificed day to day just to like get where they were. And I don't know if in those cases, it was both a personal choice or, um, you know, just like work life was not a balance at all back then that you could even consider. So um, I just knew that when I left Stephen's company, that was really kind of the back of my head. These women who I've looked up to my whole life um, don't have the one thing that I'm really hoping to, to have for myself, the way I grew up with my parents kind of having that little family unit. So that's what kind of set me back, I think, when I, and it, you know, it all works out. And it, I think it gave me great perspective when I came back into music, but that was really one of the reasons I stepped out of it um, was like thinking as a woman, I just don't see how this is possible. Um, I really don't. And so when I came back in, I was like on my own. I didn't have a company that I worked for anymore. And I was going to try to do it um, as an independent manager. And I thought, well, I need like, I need a support system somehow. Um, and so I looked up I think I Googled women in music, assuming that if something was going to come up, it would probably be under that title. And the organization came up. Um, and so I kind of poked around and I saw that one of the women who were um, on the board at the time was Jennifer Newman Sharp, um, who's an attorney. She was independent. She went out on her own um, as a young executive. And I was like, you know what? I need an entertainment attorney because I need to figure out like in terms of management, how am I setting up my contracts? How am I setting up my company? Like all of these things. Um, and I the other person who I had met with was Elliot Groffman, who's actually now our attorney for one of my clients and like someone I speak to every single day um, and a guiding uh, advisor for me in so many ways. But Michelle Anthony took me into a meeting with him because um, she was like, okay, if you want to work in management, you need to see how things work on the law side of things. And I went into that meeting and Elliot is like uh, an architect, you know, he's like the most incredibly brilliant uh, attorney. And he, I talked to him about one of my first artists early on and, you know, he asked me a million questions and challenged me and um, I didn't have any answers at that point. Right. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. You're right. I need to think this and this and okay, this is what's important. And, um, and so then when I finally went out on my own and was like, I need my own attorney who I can go to, I was like, you know, I just really, I don't want like one of the top attorneys in the business. I need someone who's kind of starting out like I am. Um, Cause I am so intimidated by these like huge personalities and kind of these leaders in the business who already have done it all and know all of these things. And I don't, and I need to be able to go to them and say like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Can you take a look at this for me and explain it to me as if I've never seen a contract before because <laughs> I haven't, you know? Um, and so I found Jen and she was like the perfect match. We talked on the phone. Um, she kind of took me through some basics. She reviewed all of my 
contracts, put together drafts for me. We talked about what my goals were as a manager, what that meant um, in, you know, contractual terms, uh, all of the other things that I hadn't considered that I want to consider going into an agreement like that with an artist. And she's still to this day, like someone I will send, I sent her a contract two days ago because I was like, you know, these X number of people have already looked at this, but will you just take a look because you're really, you know, she's a person I trust in ways that, um, she will always tell me one way or another if there's anything I'm kind of overlooking and just a huge, huge support. And so that's how I kind of found my community, you know, through Women in Music. I, I met Jen. She brought me onto the board of Women in Music in 2013. My fellow board members now are VP Moira McCarthy is at Position Music. She's in Sync Licensing. Bridget Perdomo is at Universal in um, Sync for TV Film and the two of them I emailed yesterday or texted yesterday to say like, Hey, I have this offer. Can you both tell me like comparatively if this is a, you know, the terms work and should I push for more? Should I not? These are just people who like are my colleagues in my own business when I don't have actual colleagues, <laughs> you know, and now certainly when people are working from home, seeing how kind of isolating being on your own at home can be working. This is like how I've been able to grow my community is being forced to really reach out and find the people who I can go to when I need um, advice on something or just need someone to bounce something off of um, when you're not working at a big company. So women in music was really how I found that community. Um, Those are women who like I, you know, grew up with a little bit over the last five or six years and now still are, are going to daily for, for questions or um, venting or whatever it is. It's a, it sounds like there's a, there's a large peer support, element um, yeah and I'm, I'm yeah. curious what, are there formal programs as well like what you know what does the organization do outside of that yeah so um, really it was set up as kind of an educational um, nonprofit and we are a 501c3 nonprofit and it was based in New York for years and years um, hosting panels and seminars to kind of educate women um, on all of the things that um, now there are, of course, like university degrees for this stuff, but certainly there wasn't back in 85. And really just to give that, you know, they, there's like this kind of annoying saying, if you can see it, you can be it thing, right? So like, if you can see a woman who has crafted the career and life that you want in this business, then you know you can get there. And I think for me growing up, I didn't see that. I didn't see a woman at the top of the industry who also had the kind of work-life balance that I was looking for. Um, And so that's really, I think what, you know, aside from the educational piece, which is so important, um, you know, giving that kind of peer support um, and those kinds of examples to look to is is so critical. So we're a volunteer organization. We now have um, chapters all over the world from LA to India. Um, So it's this really cool network, not only, and we don't, it's not only for women. We, hope to reach gender parity at some point with our members. We're really just kind of a community to support the idea of equality, diversity, and inclusion in the, in the industry. So men are a huge part of that, obviously, and still so much the decision-making um, body of our industry. So we really kind of, we actually just launched a male allies program uh, at the end of last year to kind of activate male members um, mm-hmm. to support equity. And we have, you know, now everything's virtual, of course. So we have webinars at least twice a week, um, which have been great. But we also have a mentorship program that we launched at the end of last year. Um, Secret Deodorant was our partner in that and kind of they had a deadline. So we had to really get it up and running. But it's something that women in, in, in the membership community have been asking for for ages. And I think it's been really helpful, especially now over the last few weeks, because um, women who signed up to, to be mentored now have like a lifeline that you know, has been crucial 
going through so much change. And we actually had a few mentors who were like senior executives who had been furloughed or laid off. Um, and so I think that's been kind of a, a really helpful dynamic to see, you know, for whether it's young women or women in the middle of their career, just looking for a mentor um, to get over a hump and kind of look to the next phase of, of their um, career development. It's been interesting to see that a lot of these women who have been furloughed or laid off um, in these really executive roles are now starting their own businesses. Um, and that, you know, these, their mentees get to kind of see what that process is. Um, and I think it's, it's going to serve even more of a critical role going forward too. You know, we have a lot of job opportunities posted for members and a lot of kind of virtual learning now happening one-on-one through that program. And it's an exciting time. And I think it really has, has kind of provided a critical community element that, um, now obviously means a lot. Yeah. Well, I, we're, we're very much uh, at or nearing the end of our time. And I want to be respectful of the fact that you're spending your precious uh, child this yeah. time with me <laughs> today. Um, if I could ask just a, a couple of other quick things. Um, yeah. I'd love to know what in your um, either professional career or in your personal ethos um, you really learned from each of your parents. And um, I'd love to know what your feelings would be if, uh, you know, 15, 20 years from now, your daughter says, uh, mom, I want to do what you do. Oh, God forbid. You know, actually she like is, she's like, it's so dramatic and she loves standing up on the highest platform she can find and like performing. And I'm like, don't you, if you, God forbid you end up being like an artist or in this business. Um, (laughs) no, hopefully at some point, you know, and that's part of, I think, women in music, too. A lot of our work is geared toward just making things more equitable for future generations. Um, so we're actually launching this thing called the Workplace Initiative, which is going to rate the best places to work in music for women um, wow. and things like that to really kind of set standards and raise the bar. Because um, still, for me, it's not possible for me to bring my daughter on tour. Um, the venue bathrooms are not clean enough. Uh, you know, there's no, like, a lot of the time there isn't a green room for women. You know, there's no women's room bathroom it's just a bathroom and it has an old male symbol you know it's just like basic stuff that doesn't exist and I will not have my daughter out on the road 24 7 um at gross clubs that don't cater to you know there's no pumping room not that there needs to be uh in venues necessarily but like we need to start thinking more about the women who are out on tour um the artists who are out on stage and need to bring their kids and all of that stuff so hopefully if my daughter ever chose to get into this business you know I'm hoping the work we're doing now 15, 20 years down the line, we'll meet a really different uh, set of standards um, for those women in the future. Um, and I think we've gotten to the point where like women in this industry kind of won't put up with it at, anymore. You know, it's like gotten so ridiculous and outdated. We're so far behind so many other industries um, in thinking about kind of equity and inclusion in those ways. Um, so I think it will be different. And then in terms of uh, the ethos, my parents, I think my dad, you know, was like the most disarming, charming, like tuned in person. Like he would stop. I remember when he passed away, all the doormen on our street in New York, like three blocks down, everyone would come over and just express their condolences because he just like, everyone became his best friend. You know, he would take walks at night. He was a really heavy guy most of his life. And he would walk, 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 try to lose weight, you know, instead of sitting at home, um, working at night, he would try to take walks. And so he would just walk up and down um, the street and and talk to all the 
doormen, you know, and he knew everyone's life story. And he would just give everyone advice. You know, he, he was always trying to join people together. Like if someone got divorced, he was trying to be like a little bit of a, you know, moderator. You know, when <laughs> I remember one doorman, a couple of doors down, was having some fight with his teenage son. And my dad came home and talked about it one night. You know, he was just like really concerned. He wanted to make sure that they repaired the relationship. He just like was that person. Um, everyone to him was like the most important person in the room. Didn't matter you or what you did. And even at the venues, like a lot of the custodial staff, you know, he would stay late um, talking to, and he was just a, a really, really unique character. And I think kind of that one-on-one -on -one relationship he had with everyone, um, making people feel like he was their sounding board in a lot of ways is something that he passed on that I really aspire to. Um, and his honesty, like he did not sugarcoat things for anyone. He really told, I mean, he did, he wasn't, you know, rude. Um, he was very, um, diplomatic, but he just really let everyone know where he stood on things. Um, and, you know, if that meant that an artist was about to go out on a, on a tour that he thought was like a ridiculous spectacle and they weren't focusing on um, the right thing and, the, you know, the goal wasn't kind of aligned with what they had set out to do, he would tell them that, um, even if it meant that, you know, the artist would walk away uh, from the agency. So that I really admire um, and aspire to. And for my mom, I think like one great thing is she, and maybe this was a product of being born during the war in England um, and, you know, being kind of the underdog in her family. Um, but she like sets, she doesn't, she doesn't set expectations. You know, she like doesn't get disappointed by things. And I think that luckily she has passed that on to me. I'm like very hard to rattle. Um, I do not get stressed easily. Like I really, that's why I was going to go into crisis PR. I really kind of enjoy the challenge of madness and mania um, rather than get stressed by it. So that is something she's just like super laid back. And if something doesn't work out, it doesn't, you know, she doesn't like, she thinks about it for two seconds and she moves ahead. Um, and I think that's something that is helpful in life. And I also aspire to pass on to my daughter too, kind of that laid back, you know, bigger picture, vision so not getting caught up on the little things um is something that she she instilled well what a great basket of attributes for an artist manager um thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i appreciate your time i really do i know that these are precious moments when the little ones uh got their head down and their eyes closed so thank you for uh for spending them with this conversation well thank you so much for having me for you Thank you so much to Nicole Barcelona. And thank you for tuning in to Spotlight On. Remember, Spotlight On is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the other great podcast outlets. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Thank you to Aunt Taylor and the entire Light family. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. And keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at LP at light.com. Please share this episode with a friend and leave feedback on your podcast platform of choice. That helps us much more than you know. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch. It's true.